Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 1, 12 to 18. Again, that's Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. One of the beauties of the gospel is the hope that it provides for our day-to-day lives. And by that, I don't just mean the eternal hope that it provides, the hope of eternal life after death. No, I also mean the hope that it provides even for this life. The gospel provides immediate hope for the life that we live right now. And that's because at the core of this message is the belief that man was created to glorify God. This belief that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever explains an awful lot about Christian doctrine. It explains what sin is, for instance, and why God hates it so much. It explains why God must punish sin and why He must punish it in the way He punishes it. It even explains why God would ultimately decide to send His Son to die on the cross as a substitute for sin. It all comes back to the idea that we were created to glorify God. But not to be missed is the hope that this doctrine provides for this life. After all, what it tells us ultimately is that the work that we do here in this life is not in vain. And that's because literally everything we do, no matter what we do, is ultimately intended to work towards this incredibly great and wonderful purpose, and that's the glory and praise of God. This fills us with incredible hope as Christians. It lets us know that brief though our lives may be, they're not insignificant. It lets us know that even when our work it goes unrecognized by others or is unappreciated by others, it's not unimportant. We can engage in every task with enthusiasm and joy, knowing that our God not only sees our attempts to glorify Him, to serve Him, but He values it. He takes pleasure in it. Over the past several weeks, we've been observing Paul's prayers for the Philippian church, and we've noted that as Paul prays that they might glorify God with their lives, he prays that they might also be able to approve what is excellent, or as the Christian Standard Bible states it, the things that are superior. He prays that they might approve the things that are superior. And in light of that prayer, we've been trying to consider just what exactly is superior. What are the things that truly do matter? What are the things that bring glory to God? And how do we grow in our understanding of what those things are? Well, it's inevitable that as we consider this question, that we're eventually going to come to the matter of evangelism. You've heard me say it many times before, the purpose of the church is worship, but its present mission is evangelism, meaning that we can glorify God in many ways on this earth, all of which are truly meaningful. At the same time, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the primary reason why God has left us here to glorify Him here on this planet is for the advancement of the gospel. To quote 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
God has set aside this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Why? Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's for the proclamation of his name. So we should probably understand that this is really the primary way that we're going to glorify God in this life. We glorify his name by telling others of how he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we do this not only so that God can be glorified in our proclamation of His grace, but so that others might actually join us in glorifying His name along with us as well. This is a very unique aspect of how we glorify God in this life. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that this is the one aspect of glorifying God that will actually cease when we die. We will increase in our ability to glorify God in all aspects of our worship, but this one. We will never again be able to, in a sense, add worshipers to His kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. So as we consider how to glorify God in this life, as we consider what are the things that are superior, we have to recognize that this is a biggie. This is one way of glorifying God that we absolutely must pursue in at least some form or fashion. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, then we must recognize that at least one of the major obstacles that we face when we try glorifying God in this way is fear. Indeed, this is probably the most significant obstacle to evangelism for most of us. It's our fear. And there's actually good reason for this. After all, the whole notion of sin tells us that we're bound to encounter trouble when we proclaim the glory of God because we live in a world that's largely given to the suppression of that knowledge. You see, there's a sense in which mankind already knows that God is glorious. In the words of Psalm 19, the very heavens declare the glory of God. So the world knows that God is glorious. But it's the implications of that truth which they hate. The glory of God means that the creature is obligated to serve God, and they hate that notion, so they thrust it away. The glory of God means that God will vindicate His name against those who will not give Him glory, and they fear that notion, and so they thrust it away. In short, the reality of sin means that most of mankind is committed to the idea of suppressing the reality of God's glory, and it's only in Christ, through the work of regeneration, that this rejection of God is taken away. And so as we go out proclaiming the glory of God, we can expect one very common response. And that's a full-throated rejection of this truth. It's as Jesus warns His disciples in Matthew 10, 24-25. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the response that Jesus teaches us to expect as we proclaim the gospel. And if they crucify Jesus, then can we really expect that we're going to go out and proclaim Him as Lord and they're going to act any different? We can expect pretty much the same response, right? We can expect rejection. And so it's for good reason, actually, that we fear proclaiming the gospel. The expectation of rejection isn't imagined. It's realistic. The Bible even tells us to expect it. And this means that if we're going to glorify God, then we must learn how to overcome this fear. 
We can see that proclaiming Christ is something to, that brings glory to God, and it does fall into this category of the things that are superior. And so we need to do this, and yet doing this will result in some very negative experiences that we'd really rather avoid. And that means that if we're going to learn to do it anyways, then we have to learn how to overcome this fear. The Apostle Paul, of course, had to learn to overcome this fear. When we read the book of Acts, when we read his epistles, we learn that this is a man who suffered immensely for the gospel. In fact, in Acts 9, right after Paul is converted, the Lord appears to a disciple named Ananias, and he sends him to restore Paul's sight. Ananias at first refuses. He tries reasoning with Jesus, saying, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Basically, he says, Lord, I don't think you realize. You see, Saul is an enemy. And if I go to him, I'm bound to get arrested. And Jesus answers him. He says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How would you like that? How would you like for the resurrected Jesus to show up just to say that you specifically are going to suffer for his name? I mean, I don't don't know about you, but it used to get me sort of nervous simply when the boss would drop by my office unexpectedly, right? You know, because he's got stuff to do. So if he's coming to see me, then it must be something really important. I can only imagine what it's like when the resurrected Lord shows up and says, hey, I just want to drop in for a second to give you a heads up about how much you're going to have to suffer for me. i got to expect that to be pretty bad, don't you? For the Lord to call you out and say you're going to suffer for me? That was precisely the way it worked for the Apostle Paul. The Lord had set him apart for a particularly important mission, and that was to spearhead the evangelization of the Gentiles. This was a mission that was going to come with an incredibly great price, and so Jesus even warned him in advance just how much he must suffer for his name. So Paul was a disciple who was incredibly familiar with the concept of suffering. You run through the list, and it's simply astounding. Scourged five times, beaten three times, publicly stoned another time, imprisoned many times. And all of this in addition to the rigors of first century missionary life. Shipwrecks, highwaymen, exposure, starvation. I mean, you name it, and Paul's experienced it. The man knows what it's like to suffer. And yet, through it all, he never wavered. He never quit. He kept fighting. Why? What kept him fighting? There's a sense in which there's no simple answer to that question. I think we could answer it from a number of different angles. However, I think at the end of the day, all of the different answers we could give still come back to a single root concern that drove Paul to do literally everything he did. And in this morning's passage, Paul is going to give us a glimpse into that root concern. The title for our current series in Philippians is The Evangelistic Psyche. And as I've explained over the past several weeks, the purpose of this series is to explore the thinking that drove Paul to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. In short, we're trying to learn from Paul's example. And in this morning's passage, Paul is going to show us what drove him to suffer for the gospel and then persevere anyways. 
Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Once again, it's Philippians 1, 12 to 18. Paul writes this. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I will rejoice. As Paul writes these words, he's suffering once again. And his friends in Philippi are concerned. They've learned that Paul is under house arrest in Rome, that he's about to stand trial before the most powerful man on the planet. And they're trying to make sense of it all. They're wondering, what does this mean for Paul? Is he about to die? Are they about to lose their dear friend? They're wondering, what does this mean for the gospel? After all, like I said, Paul had been appointed for a special purpose, and all the churches knew this. He had been appointed by Christ himself to take the gospel out among the Gentiles. So what does this mean for Paul? But even more importantly, what does this mean for the gospel? Does Paul's imprisonment mean that the church is about to lose its greatest missionary? Is this the end of Paul's missionary journeys? These are the types of questions that the Philippians began to ask themselves when they heard that Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And so they took up an offering and they sent a messenger to Paul in order to get some answers to these questions. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen to him. And Paul writes this letter as a response to these concerns. In the passage we just read, he provides what is essentially his missionary report. He tells them the progress of his ministry. And as Paul provides this update, he gives us a glimpse into what causes him to persevere in spite of all of his sufferings. With that in mind, I think we can break his answer down into two parts. I'd like to present these two parts as two reasons to persevere in suffering for the gospel. Again, that's two reasons to persevere in suffering for the gospel. So why should you keep proclaiming Christ even in spite of all these negative consequences I mentioned just a moment ago? Here are two reasons. Reason number one, because suffering advances the gospel. Again, you persevere in suffering for the gospel because suffering advances the gospel. We see this in verses 12 to 14. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more, much more bold to speak the word without fear. There's this thought out there that suffering hinders the advancement of the gospel. I mean, if you stop to think about it, that's the very premise of religious persecution, isn't it? The reason why the religious leaders killed Jesus is because they believed that that would stamp out the movement he had started. 
It's why they beat and imprisoned the apostles as well. It's why Rome would also eventually turn on the Christians and outlaw their religion. They too believed that they could quiet the church with intimidation. This is the very premise of religious persecution. If you just make being a Christian painful enough, then it'll go away. Well, it's not just unbelievers that think this. Many Christians can also fall sway to the idea that persecution is an effective means of silencing the gospel. In fact, I believe you see this type of thinking on display often today among believers right here in America. There are Christians who fight for religious liberty because they think that without this liberty, the progress of the gospel will be hindered. They try to rally the church, tell us that we need to be alarmed at the erosion of our liberties, but the reason they give is not because these liberties allow us to live a peaceful and quiet life, which is actually the reason that Paul gives us to seek religious liberty in 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. No, they say that the reason is because without this liberty, we're going to lose the opportunity to provide a strong witness to Jesus Christ. In short, they believe that a loss of religious liberty will be effective in slowing the advancement of the gospel. They think that we will advance the gospel most efficiently only when we're free to evangelize openly. Meaning they believe that persecution is an effective means of silencing the gospel. This is what the Philippians fear as well, as they send their messenger Epaphroditus to Paul. They're fearful that Paul's arrest means that their enemies are winning. That they're on the verge of silencing the gospel. Perhaps this is even why Paul will have to urge them to stand firm in their faith later on in this letter. Perhaps it's because they're beginning to think that Paul's imprisonment is a sign that it's all about to fall apart. That Christianity is about to be wiped off the map by this surge of religious persecution. Paul answers their fear in verse 12. Are their enemies winning? No, Paul answers. He says, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You hear that? Here they are, concerned about Paul, wondering what his imprisonment means, not only for him, but even more importantly, for the state of the gospel. And Paul answers by saying, well, actually, things have been going really well. In fact, you may not believe this, but this has all actually served to advance the gospel. He tells them that his house arrest has been a good thing. This is a fact that Christians can often lose sight of. Religious persecution does not work. Instead, it often aids the advancement of the gospel. You see this take place at so many levels. I mean, you look in the New Testament, for instance, and were the religious leaders right? Did they manage to kill Jesus' influence when they killed Jesus? Hardly. As Gamaliel notes in Acts 5, the influence of other so-called messiahs had been stamped out with their deaths, but not Jesus. His influence only managed to increase. You take a step back and widen the frame, examine church history. Did religious persecution work there? Again, the answer is no. The early church actually thrived under religious persecution, and they knew it. As a matter of fact, you may not realize this, but the very first monastic movements only started to become popular about the time that Christianity became legal. And at least one of the reasons, it would seem, is because Christians actually feared that their newfound religious freedom was going to hinder their witness to the gospel. 
It meant that they were no longer outcasts in their society. That there was no longer a clear line dividing them from the rest of their society. And not only that, but they were no, able, no longer able to demonstrate the sincerity of their faith at the same level they could when they were suffering for it. And so they made the choice to exile themselves. To set themselves apart from society physically by gathering together in these religious communities where they could demonstrate the sincerity of their faith through self-inflicted suffering and religious asceticism. Now that's definitely not the way that you deal with religious freedom. But I think it highlights the fact that the church was well aware of the fact that the gospel actually advanced through persecution. As Tertullian himself so famously noted at the end of the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The same could be said of the Protestant Reformation. Rome made efforts to stamp out the teachings of men like John Wycliffe and John Huss and Martin Luther through threats of persecution, but their effort ultimately failed. The Reformation was not only born, it thrived. You even look into the future, to the book of Revelation, where John describes what will easily be the most intense period of persecution in history. And it's there that we also learn that it's at this time that the gospel will finally be proclaimed throughout the entire earth. Make no mistake, persecution doesn't kill the gospel. It advances it. If you look here, I think Paul helps us see how persecution advances the gospel. For example, verse 13, we learn that his suffering has actually raised the gospel's profile. It's made the gospel more visible. Paul says, end of verse 12 and end of verse 13, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is probably a reference here to the emperor's own elite praetorian guard. Referring to this guard, one commentator notes, he says, although they would have guarded Paul around the clock, they would also have given him access to visitors, to the writing of letters, and to other routine matters. Since they would rotate on a basically four-hour shift, Paul would have had access to several or many of them, from whom eventually the whole guard would have known the reason for his bonds. Let me tell you why this is important. Philippi, remember, was a Roman colony. It was a Roman colony actually refounded by Caesar Augustus in order to commemorate his victory in battle. Meaning that this is a city not only filled with Gentiles, but patriotic Romans. And patriotic Romans who knew well the power of Rome. So the Philippians hear about Paul's imprisonment and they're wondering what's going to happen. Is this the moment where Rome finally flexes its muscle and crushes the gospel? And Paul answers and tells them, actually, it's the other way around. Caesar's own bodyguard is now hearing about the gospel through me because of this imprisonment. Again, people sometimes lose sight of this fact. The fact of the matter is that when there's a conflict over the gospel, it ends up drawing attention to the gospel. Authorities begin to wonder, what's this all about? And they take notice. That's what we see so often with Paul. The controversy surrounding his message often leads him to have to answer before the most powerful rulers of the cities and districts that he's preaching in. In fact, this is even why he's in Rome. The Romans had to step in to save him from the Jews, and this led him to preach not only before the high priest, and then Felix, and then Agrippa, but now he's about to preach before no less than Caesar himself. 
No, the gospel isn't being hindered by his imprisonment. Actually, his imprisonment is what's actually allowing him to preach Christ to some of the most powerful men on the planet. But of course, it's not just the authorities that take notice. When persecution happens, everyone else takes notice as well. People start to wonder. And they ask themselves, why are these guards standing at that door? Why was this guy brought all the way from Jerusalem to here? And word starts to get around because of the controversy. And the result is that the message is actually made famous through this suffering. People start to wonder, what is this person suffering for? Why are so many people mad at this person? And this leads us to the second way that suffering advances the gospel. It not only raises the gospel's profile, but it also provides the clearest witness to the power of this message. This also comes out in verse 13, though it's somewhat harder to see. The phrasing in verse 13 is a bit difficult in the Greek, and part of what makes it difficult is that Paul actually uses the phrase in Christ here, not for Christ. He says, It has become known that my imprisonment is in Christ. When Paul uses that kind of terminology, he usually means it in the sense of identification with Christ, with the implication being that the imperial guard not only understands that Paul is suffering on behalf of Christ, for Christ, but even as an expression of Christ, that his suffering is intended to reflect the character of Christ. As one commentator puts it, quote, he probably means something like, it has become clear that I am in chains because I am a man in Christ and that my chains are in part a manifestation of discipleship as one who is thereby participating in the sufferings of Christ himself. In other words, the idea seems to be that Paul isn't just suffering for Christ, but that Paul's suffering is intended as a picture of Christ. The reason why he suffers is because he represents a suffering Savior. Christ was rejected by the world, so Paul is rejected by the world. Christ suffered for the salvation of men, and so Paul too suffers for the salvation of his fellow men. It all points back to the gospel, and the guard is understanding this. This is the other aspect of suffering that Christians sometimes miss. It's like I said a minute ago, the first monasteries started because the church's acceptance by society meant that Christians could no longer demonstrate the sufferings of Christ. Christians understood that this actually weakened their message, and so they took it upon themselves to inflict their own suffering upon themselves in order to make their message clearer. Again, that's not necessarily supposed to be how this works, how that happens, but I think it helps establish the point. It's actually when we suffer for the gospel... And not only suffer for the gospel, but persevere in joy because of the great hope that we have set before us. And when we, ret- when we return evil with good, with love, because Christ has so loved us. It's at this point that the world can see before their very eyes in very powerful terms both the meaning and beauty of this message. In this sense, suffering doesn't hinder the gospel, it advances it. It demonstrates this radical, otherworldly kind of love that's established through Christ. And as it does this, it not only demonstrates the beauty of Christ, but it puts in sharp relief the sin and evil of those who persecute us. 
In other words, it shows Christ for who He really is, and it shows sin for what it really is. And in this way, it makes a person's choice very clear. I think once again of Tertullian. That statement he's famous for, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It comes from a treatise he wrote called Apologeticus. It's a work in which he argues for Christians to receive the same kind of treatment that other religions enjoyed in the Roman Empire. As he gets to the end, he openly taunts the Romans, saying, Crucify, torture, condemn, grind us all to powder if you can. Your injustice is an illustrious proof of our innocence. Again, it's the Christian's righteousness in the face of suffering that unmasks, unmasks the brutality of Rome for what it really is and makes the choice to follow Christ all the more appealing. And Tertullian knows this, and he concludes. He says, But do your worst, and rack your inventions of tortures for Christians. It is all to no purpose. You do but attract the world, and make it fall the more in love with our religion. That which you reproach in us as stubbornness has been the most instructing mistress in proselytizing the world. For who has not been struck at the sight of that which you call stubbornness, and from thence pushed on to look into the reality and reason of it? And whoever looked well into our religion but came over to it, and whoever came over but was ready to suffer for it, to purchase the favor of God and obtain the pardon of all his sins through the price of his blood? For martyrdom is sure a mercy. For this reason it is that we thank you for condemning us, because there is such a blessed emulation and discord between the divine and human judgment that when you condemn us upon earth, God absolves us in heaven. Again, this is the benefit of Christian suffering. It actually tends to draw people in, not only by raising the profile of the gospel, but by demonstrating the beauty of it. There's one more way that suffering advances the gospel. You see it come out in verse 14. Suffering advances the gospel by emboldening believers to share their faith. It emboldens believers to share the gospel. Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's an interesting sort of notion. That believers are becoming more bold as they witness Paul's imprisonment in Rome. You'd think that it would have the opposite effect. After all, again, the whole point of persecution is to stamp out dissent. Here, Paul says that it's doing the opposite. It's inflaming it. How does this work? Is it because Christians are seeing how well Paul is doing and going, oh, I guess the suffering isn't that bad? That seems unlikely. Maybe it's a show of solidarity with Paul. You know, are are they taking a stand with Paul as a means of showing their support of him? Sort of a we are Paul moment? Could be. But that isn't really what Paul seems to indicate. I think in order to understand where this confidence is coming from, you have to look down at verse 16. In verse 15, Paul notes that some people are preaching to afflict him. Surely, but many are not. They're actually trying to help Paul's evangelistic efforts. As Paul describes this second group, he says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
Now, to be clear, by this, Paul isn't merely saying that the Philippians understand that he's on trial for his faith, that he's going to have to stand before Caesar and defend his faith. No, he's saying that they understand that he's been appointed to defend the gospel. In the Acts 9, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles' sense of the term. Like Jesus has appointed Paul specifically to stand before Caesar and explain the gospel. He's been appointed for the defense of the gospel in that sense. So then, what's going on here? How is this understanding of Paul's ministry leading to that kind of boldness for the gospel? Are they viewing Paul as their evangelistic champion? Or something like that? Like, are they gaining confidence because they see Paul as this highly skilled evangelist, you know, the best of the best? And so he comes into Rome, and it's almost like Goliath stepping onto the battlefield. They're thinking to themselves, all right, Paul's here. There's no way we can lose now. He's going to convert Caesar. Is there a boldness like that? Or do they maybe think that because he's been appointed by Jesus to do this specific task, then there's almost this kind of protective bubble around Paul? Like they know Jesus has other plans for him, so they know it isn't his time to die just yet. And since Paul isn't going to die, that means that whatever Rome decides to do next, it really can't be that bad, can it? You know, do they think that that Paul's arrival means that conditions must be favorable for the proclamation of the gospel? No, I don't think it's either of these things. And the reason is because in verse 14, Paul notes that this imprisonment has made them more confident in the Lord. Meaning their faith, not in Paul, or of their safety, but their confidence in Christ is somehow being strengthened by Paul's imprisonment. So why is that? Why would they have greater confidence in Christ because of Paul's imprisonment? Again, because verse 16, they know that Paul has been appointed for the defense of the gospel. In other words, Jesus has said, Paul is going to stand before kings to bear witness to my name. And then they look up and suddenly here's Paul in Rome about to stand trial before Caesar. And their thought is, praise God, Jesus reigns. He's orchestrating this whole thing just like he said. And when you're thinking like that, suddenly Caesar doesn't seem like a very big deal. They know they can't be defeated because God is on their side. They're gaining boldness in that sense. They're speaking the word without fear, not because they won't suffer for the gospel, but because they know that even if they do, they're still on the winning side. They can't be beat because Jesus is Lord. Paul's imprisonment for the gospel bears witness to that. I tell you, gospel boldness is cumulative in this sense. Do you know what happens when you don't share the gospel? No one comes to Christ. And do you know what happens when no one comes to Christ? You lose confidence in the gospel. You see a lack of converts and you convince yourself that's because evangelism doesn't work. You tell yourself it's no use, no one's going to believe this, and so you just stop sharing your faith altogether. But guess what happens when you do share your faith? 
You'll be rejected, sure. You'll have a lot of awkward conversations, maybe even insulted from time to time by someone who's really openly hostile to the gospel. But do you know what else will happen? Eventually, someone will believe. And when that new believer is standing in the baptismal, talking about how someone shared their faith with them and their eyes were opened and they were once lost, but now they're found, that doesn't just encourage you to share your faith. It encourages everyone else as well. All of a sudden, people are thinking to themselves, wait a minute, you mean it works? You mean I can share my faith and people will actually believe? And they start to think that maybe they can share their faith too. There's this confidence that's built, this confidence in the Lord that He is risen and active in this world, that He is softening the hearts of lost people, and it produces tremendous boldness to speak the Word without fear. Again, suffering raises the Gospel's profile. It demonstrates the beauty of the Gospel. And as this happens, and as converts are made through that suffering, there's this whole snowball effect where more and more believers gain the confidence to share their faith as God's Word proves true. This is the other way that suffering advances the Gospel, by emboldening Christians to share their faith without fear. And overall, this is the first reason that Paul shares with us in verses 12 to 14 about why he perseveres in the proclamation of the gospel. He keeps proclaiming the gospel even when he suffers because the gospel can actually advance through suffering. That's what's happened to Paul since he came into Rome. His imprisonment hasn't hindered the gospel, it's advanced it. But you know, this still doesn't really answer our question, does it? It still doesn't tell us why Paul keeps sharing his faith. I mean, okay, so the gospel advances through suffering. That's good and all. But that still doesn't take away from the fact that suffering hurts. Like, Paul's paying a price here, right? So, would he want to pay that price just to advance the gospel? If so, why? Why is this worth it to Paul? The reason, ladies and gentlemen, is because the glory of Christ is what truly matters to Paul. That's the second reason why Paul perseveres in his proclamation of the gospel, because he values the glory of Christ most. And since suffering advances the gospel, it's worth it in Paul's eyes. I think we see this fact bear itself out in verses 15 to 18, speaking of these believers who are speaking the word without fear. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So there are two types of proclamation that are going on in this context, there are those who are preaching Christ from good intentions. This group seems to need no explanation. They're preaching a sound gospel and they're doing it for the right reasons. So they're on the same team as Paul. They're co-laborers for the gospel. The second group is a bit harder to pin down. They clearly have wrong intentions. They're meaning to, to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. 
meaning there's a lack of sincerity in their proclamation. They're not preaching to advance the gospel per se, but to afflict Paul. And yet it still appears to be a true gospel. We know this because in verse 18, Paul seems to affirm the content of their preaching. So what's going on here? We might be tempted to say that these are Jews who are jealous over Paul's success with the Gentiles. This actually happened to Paul on at least one occasion, and not too far from Philippi, actually. In the very next town Paul visited, Thessalonica, Luke records how a great many Gentiles and not a few of the leading women came to believe in the Lord there. And he says, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, uh, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So it could be here that the Jews are going around saying, Paul's saying that there's another king named Jesus, who we killed. He says that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is going to come to destroy the nations of the earth, including Rome. And of course, they'd be saying this in order to stir up the Romans and maybe get Caesar's attention so that Paul would be punished by Caesar. If that's happening, then obviously Paul wouldn't be too concerned about it because that's all true. That's exactly the message he's proclaiming, and the Jews are helping to spread this message for him, even though they mean it for his harm instead of good. And this would all be very neat. It even fit Paul's warnings about Judaizers in chapter 3. The only problem is that Paul seems to refer to these people as Christians. Verse 14, he says, Most of the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then verse 15, he says, some, some, meaning some of these brothers, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So these aren't Jews, these are Christians. They're Christians proclaiming a true gospel, but with insincere motives. So what's happening? Paul notes that they proclaim the gospel out of selfish ambition, so they apparently think they have something to gain from this proclamation of the gospel. And again, they do this in order to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. It's a little hard to pin down just precisely what's happening here, but best I can tell, it would seem that these are brothers who are probably a little bit envious of all the attention that Paul's getting. You know, like maybe these are church leaders and they've gotten used to the respect that they receive from their disciples. Only now, the famous Paul has come into town. And everyone's talking about him. And they're whispering to one another about how brave he is. And how bold he is for the sake of the gospel. And how much he suffered for Christ. And these leaders are jealous. And so they sort of, you know, wipe off their hands and they say, You think that's bold? Well, watch this. And they step it up a notch. Only the reason they're doing it isn't because they really care about Jesus, but because they're competing with Paul. And that's the pain that they're trying to inflict on Paul. They think that Paul is like them. They were hurt when Paul stole their spotlight, and so they think that Paul will likewise hurt when they steal it back. Only Paul's not hurt by it at all. Because he's not like them, is he? Now, what does Paul say? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
Paul says, they mean to hurt me, but really I don't care. Because I'm not in this for me. I'm in it for Christ. And if Christ is proclaimed, then that's enough. Now Paul is actually not afflicted by their preaching, right? Because he's not motivated by the same types of desires they are. It's not about selfish ambition for Paul. Even still, I think this gives tremendous insight into Paul's perspective on suffering. People are trying to wound Paul. And what's the question that he's asking? He's asking, is it advancing the gospel? It is? Then good. It's not a problem. I'm fine with it. He's not really concerned about whether people mean to hurt him through the proclamation of the gospel. Because the only thing that matters to him is the glory of Christ. So if the gospel is advancing, great! So if you want to know where Paul's willingness to suffer comes from, I think you have to say, this is it. Over the past several months, I've often said you will ultimately act according to what you value most. Well, what what Paul's demonstrating in his actions is that the thing that he values most is the glory of Christ. That's why why he'll pay this price. You think back to the parable of the pearl of great value, and that's the idea, right? The kingdom of heaven can come at a great cost for many, and yet as costly as it is, it's still worth it. You know how that works, don't you? I mean, you've been shopping before. You saw something that you wanted, but then you said, I wonder how much that costs, and you pulled out the price tag, and you went, whew, a bit too steep for my blood, right? You liked what you saw, it just wasn't worth it. But then there were other times when you looked at the price tag and you said, wow, now that's steep, but you know what? I think I'm still going to buy it. And the reason was because as expensive as the item was, in your eyes it was still worth it. That's how Paul thinks about suffering in relation to the gospel. He looks at the price tag for the advancement of Christ's glory and he says to himself, you know what, that's pretty steep but I think it's worth it. And he makes the purchase anyways. He's not under any illusions. He knows the cost of proclaiming Christ. It's just that he thinks it's worth it. And I'd have you note here, that's not just because souls are saved when the gospel is preached. We can sometimes convince ourselves of the cost of suffering for that reason. Uh, I know I'll sometimes encourage myself by thinking, is my temporary discomfort worth more than their eternal suffering? And the answer, of course, is no. This is a good trade, right? To suffer a little bit of temporary discomfort now for their eternal joy. That's a good trade. And it's not that this is a bad way of thinking. It's just that this isn't the way that Paul's thinking right here. Rather, he's thinking in terms of the glory of Christ. That's the prize that pushes him forward. He thinks to himself, does my king deserve the suffering that I am about to endure for his glory? And as he considers the cross... The answer is a thousand times yes. It's his love for Jesus that causes him to endure. And I think what this demonstrates for us is that if we don't evangelize simply due to fear, then the problem ultimately is with our worship. It's with our worship. It's not, the problem is not that the price is too high. 
It's that we love Jesus too little. We don't live for His glory over our suffering because we don't value His glory more than our suffering. We don't proclaim broadly because we do not love deeply. This is one of the reasons why our motto here at Cornerstone is growth through depth. It's because we believe that the church will only be motivated to take the gospel out as we develop and cultivate a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we develop that love in part through an in-depth understanding of His Word and through in-depth relationships with the body of Christ, the church. So as we ponder the reasons why we hesitate to glorify Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, the question that I'd actually ask you is, what are you doing to cultivate your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? I've said that prayer is a good indicator of a person's spiritual health. Well, so is evangelism. The Christian who isn't talking about Jesus, and not only with believers, but with unbelievers as well, they're not spiritually healthy. And I don't say that to guilt you. I don't want you to misunderstand me. This is important. I'm not trying to guilt you to go out and share your faith against your will. I mean, yes, we do need to proclaim Christ even when it's uncomfortable. That's the whole point of today's message, right? So I'm not saying just wait until you feel like it either. But at the same time, the point is that a good tree bears good fruit. So if the tree does not bear good fruit, the point is not to start stapling fruit onto the tree because that doesn't fix the problem of the unhealthy source. The problem is the quality of the tree, not the lack of fruit. And so I'd say this in order to make you pause for a moment and say, wait a minute, am I as spiritually healthy as I like to think I am? I say it to help you see that you are sick Not so that you can go and mask the symptoms, but so that you'll go and seek the sort of treatment that will heal the disease. Evangelism is first and foremost an expression of a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're struggling to share your faith, then the first step, actually, is to probably go back and ask yourself, do I have this faith? Do I believe what I'm saying? And if so, am I applying it daily in my life? Is it working itself out in a way in the way that I live? And is there this day-to-day relationship with Jesus that's developing as a result of that? So that my love for Him is spilling out into my life. Am I regularly remembering the glories of the gospel and daily taking joy in Christ as a result? Because if not then your faith is only going to be a dead kind of orthodoxy. And friends, if your faith is merely dead orthodoxy, then you will never share it. Because it won't be worth it to you. If you're going to glorify God, then you're going to have to overcome the fear of the consequences of evangelism. You're not going to be able to make the consequences go away. Hear me clearly on that. You're not going to be able to make the consequences go away because it's the inevitable result of proclaiming the glory of God in a world that rejects His glory. So you're not going to be able to make the consequences go away. You just have to want the fruit of evangelism enough that the price is worth it for you. And the only way that's going to happen 
is if you love Jesus. So if you're struggling to share your faith, this is probably where you need to begin by learning how to love Jesus. Let's close this morning by praying that God would open our hearts to love him more. Let's pray.